This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor John Carey, who's a distinguished academic, literary critic, author, and the chief book reviewer for The Sunday Times. His new book is called A Little History of Poetry, and it takes us all the way from the Epic of Gilgamesh to Les Murray. John, welcome. Can I start by asking, you do start with almost a sort of one-sentence definition of poetry at the beginning, and I wondered if you'd be able to expand on that a little to say, you know, what what do you think it is that distinguishes poetry from other forms of, of verbal art? Yeah, it's a very difficult question, and you're right. I do sort of sidle out of it because I say that poetry is to language as music is to noise, and that music is noise made special so that you remember it and value it. And poetry is language made special so you remember it and value it. And I say, of course, it doesn't work always. Countless poems over the centuries have been forgotten. And my book is about ones that have not. It's cheating in a way because it's relying on the valuation and and the lastingness, which are indisputable, of course. I mean, the poems that we remember, we remember, or are are valued, poems that are valued, are valued. It's getting away from, of course, what makes a poem special. And I think I deliberately avoid that because it can be countless numbers of things and will vary in any case from person to person. I very much don't believe, and say in the first chapter of the book, I don't believe in overall judgments about literature. I think judgments about literature, about aesthetic objects altogether, are personal. They're a matter of opinion. No one has ever been able to define why why a great poem is a great poem and I think it would be ridiculous to try. There is with everyone. But in this you presumably sort of semi-followed your own opinion. I mean I'm interested how you put it together because you obviously there is you know kind of the canon in some sense but you've you've shaped how you arrange it. You've kind of you know pulled some people who are slightly forgotten back into the light. You've you know, downgraded a few people. I mean, how how did you go about it? Did you, I mean, I, I suppose there's an enormous amount of kind of reading through anthologies and, I mean, obviously you know a great deal of this stuff very well indeed, but did you sort of search for truffles outside, you know, where, you were, where your usual hunting grounds were? Oh, very much, yeah. I I did. I, I drew up a, a list of poets that I knew I should have read and hadn't had time to or told myself I hadn't had time to. It was quite extensive and it was wonderful. I mean, it was such a revelation reading them. And of course, I had with most to depend on translations. And I I went for what I thought of as the best translations. That's the ones that read best as English poetry. And the discoveries were phenomenal. I mean, I'd pick out particularly Rilke, who I had. I mean, I was taught by 
a great Rilke translation, J.B. Leishman, translator. So I had had a look at Rilke a bit, and my German's not very good, but I learned German in order to be able to read Rilke. But I'd never read him in, in entirety, and, and doing that was simply marvellous. And were there, were there other sort of discoveries you made in, I mean, were there discoveries you made in English, or were you pretty much across the English canon? Oh, way, way past the, the English canon. Yeah, I, ha- I hadn't actually read Goethe in, in total before, and quite a lot of relatively modern poets. I, I, I list a number of poets under political poets, poets who um, we now think of as related to political causes. Obviously, Lorca is the most famous, but but many others. Akhmatova, who wrote under Stalin, as you know. So, yeah, there, there were a lot of poets outside what you might call the English canon. A and you, lot. Put, you put R.S. Thomas in with the, with the political poets. I do, I do, and that's a, a regret of mine. I think I shouldn't have done that. He isn't I, he is a political poet, of course, you know, he he supported the burning of English holiday homes in Wales, you know, he was, he was a firm Welsh nationalist, no question about that. But he was also a great religious poet, and I should have made, I do say so, but I should have made more of that. He was tormented by, un, unusually for religious poets, by a sense of God's desertion. It's very interesting. I can't think of another religious poet to whom that applies. So, yes, I should have made more of Thomas. Did you find yourself making revaluations? Because presumably you were revisiting some material, you know, in in the sort of, as it were, better known Anglophone material that that you won't have read for a while. You won't have read in its entirety. I mean, you'll presumably have taught. I I don't know that I re-evaluated poets that I knew well. I mean, poets that I've taught in the past, I suppose, what I did feel the need to do was to make them, after all, this this book is aimed at teenagers, really, people who are not well up in poetry anyway. So I tried to make the poets that I admire very much, Dunn and Milton, of course, attractive on that level. It's not hard to do, but I felt the need to make that effort. Well, you do. You do have the joy of sort of cherry picking the the, the great lines. Yes, I do. And actually, I, I learned a lot from that because the, the length of the book, as you know, is eighty thousand words. It doesn't allow for any <laughs> quoting at length, and so I had to pick and choose. And I think that that was very good because it made me concentrate on what words really mattered. If I was going to represent a poem by bits and pieces, quotations, just snatches, and I had to find which snatches matter, that was very educative, as a matter of fact. Many many years ago, I was about 15, I think, someone gave me a book by Edgar Allan Poe, the great American poet, who was also a very fine critic, and he wrote, in, in this book that I was given, he wrote two essays, one called The Poetic Principle, I think, and one called The Rationale of Verse. They're both online, as a matter of fact. I didn't know at the time, but they were enormously treasured by the symbolist poets. Anyway, what he says, what Poe says, is that a long poem is a contradiction in terms, and that all long poems are really <laughs> short poems joined together by prose. 
I'm not sure I quite go along with that, but I see what he means, that if you, as I had to, quote bits and pieces, I give some examples. For example, there's a, there's a poem by Thomas Hardy where he's writing about, about his wife's death. His wife died in the next door bedroom and he sort of, he writes a poem sort of blaming her for not telling him that she was dying. And he says, never to bid goodbye or lip me, the softest call, lip, L-I-P, wonderful, wonderful word. And I, I think if you try and change that word, then you've lost something enormously valuable. You've only got to try and think what word you will put in its place and, and you see it's impossible. That kind of decision I was having to make all the time. And I think it was very good for me. I guess some poets are probably more susceptible to that. I mean, with, when you're talking about Yeats or Auden, who kind of throw out these amazing two or three line singers, I think you've got a whole paragraph in Yeats, which is just, you know, he came out with phrases like this, you know, bang, 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 but some less so. Yes. I mean, Yeats is, of course, magnificent. And he does, I, I, the, the example I'd take from Yeats is from Second Coming. He says, what rough beast it's time come round at, at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Slouches, you know, where Yeats's sort of terror of the future takes on a sort of street corner reality. <laughs> That's well put. Now, you know, you just mentioned Hardy doing what, you know, some poets are prone to do. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the instance of, you know, Rossetti, you know, having buried the sonnet cycle with his wife, then sort of digging it up in order to publish it. You know, they're kind of quite a selfish lot, poets, some of them. You know, Hardy will blame his wife for dying. You've got, you know... I mean, you don't stint in this book from bringing forward and passing comment on the personalities of the poets. I mean, I think, you know, Dante, for instance, you have rather hard hard words for. Yeah, it's true. And I obviously stand to be corrected, but it seems to me that Dante's Inferno is horrific just appalling, appalling lists of human suffering, most ghastly human suffering, and all ostensibly being inflicted because of a wise and just God. That just seems to be a terrible, terrible view of humanity. And I, I don't, I mean, to say, well, the poetry is wonderful, <laughs> seems to me to ignore what's really important that is to say, humankind. And to say the poetry is wonderful is like saying, well, you know, the gas chambers were very well engineered, but what, what were they for, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you don't take, I guess, you know, Empson's very sort of tricky about Milton, isn't he? Because he took the view that, you know, actually God was the baddie in that. I mean, obviously a lot of people have, and that Christianity is a religion based on torture. Do you think the the same criticism can be applied to Milton as is applied to Dante? Yeah, I do. I think I'm, I actually greatly admire Empson. And I think Empson's God is a book that anyone who reads Paradise Lost should read, uh, along with other you know, books about Paradise Lost. And I, I don't think that was a mistake on Milton's part, actually. I think he saw, Milton saw the difficulties of what he believed. And in my view... The speech that he gives, I think it's in book 10, to Adam, ostensibly clearing God of blame, 
is deeply flawed. And I think Milton knew it was deeply flawed. I think he saw, you know, he, he was had an enormously subtle and controversial mind, you know, marvellous controversialist. I think he saw the weakness in those arguments and couldn't solve it. Who can? Now, I mean, that, that issue of personality and of the world and of the poetry's connection with the world, um, you know, even when I was an undergraduate, the, the sort of new critical, you know, Brooks, Richards, Wimsatt sort of line that the poetry has to be detached from its author, has to be detached in some ways from its its historical context. Do you think that's that's been superseded? I mean, how far do you do you still buy that line? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I was ever very attracted to to that line. I mean, I admire those critics, but I think that that what was then called the new criticism doesn't say new now <laughs> was was based on. To tell you the truth, I think it was based on uh, having to educate um, large numbers of discharged servicemen in libraries, in colleges where there wasn't much in the way of secondary material around. So there was nothing to do with concentrate on the words on the page, as the slogan was. Well, actually, biographical criticism has far outlasted that biographical criticism may have its flaws and faults and uncertainties, but nonetheless, it's proved to be, be much more long-lasting than the words on the page. Do you, do you find it easy to detach the morality of the poet from the poem? I mean, obviously, Pound's anti-Semitism is the thing everyone brings up, but I mean, there's that line in Auden's Elegy for Yeats where he says, you know, time will pardon Paul Cordell, pardon him for writing well. Yeah. Do, do, do you think writing well does earn you earn you that kind of get out of jail free card? Yeah, it's a tricky question. I think I feel obliged to say what I think about, so to speak, the human message that any poet, so far as I can see, is putting across, and that seems to me an important thing to do. I think that well, Pound, yeah, is a case in point. I don't actually admire the cantos very much. I I do think they're wonderful in parts. They're also, I think, deeply flawed as poetry, quite apart from the anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is something that has been laid to Eliot's charge as well, of course, yeah. and I think rightly. I find it very difficult to I, I admire Eliot so much, simply as a poet. I mean, the way he produces astonishing phrases, unbelievably wonderful phrases. And I, I'm disinclined, I'm, I'm afraid, probably, to accuse him of things he deserves to be accused of. Yeah, it's tempting. For a lot of the history of poetry, you know, you go back, you begin with the Epic of Gilgamesh and sort of take us forwards. You know, poetry seems to have been a, if not the, central kind of literary art form. I'm wondering how much you think that's changed over the years and how that affects essentially its place in the culture and how it affects, you know, whether it can be political, whether it can be a moral force, all those other questions that we, we sometimes ask about it. Yes, that's a good point. I, I think it has changed in that a lot of what narrative poets were read for has been superseded by the novel. Obviously, the novel is the great arrival on the literary scene since whatever, the 18th century and into the 19th, and carries a lot of the weight of 
concentrating thought on human issues that poetry used to bear. I'm I'm torn in my you probably noticed in my sort of estimates of poetry about over how much what it says matters and how much how it says it matters. And I'm inclined sometimes to think, well, I suppose I'm I'm not impartial, but uh, I, I think if you take a poem like Coluda's Kubla Khan, for example, which a lot of people would say is the greatest poem in the language, and I can see why, you, you have to say, does it make sense? And the answer isn't, no, not really, and no one <laughs> will be able to paraphrase it, even within possible distance of exhausting its meanings. Doesn't make sense. It's not nonsense. It makes grammatical sense. I mean, Zanadu de Kubla Khan and so on, you know what it means. I think you make the same point about Wallace Stevens' Emperor of Ice Cream. Well, Wallace Stevens said an interesting thing, didn't he? Which was, I can quote it, but he said, poetry should escape the intelligence almost successfully. Isn't, doesn't he? That's what he says. <laughs> Meaning it doesn't quite get away from the intelligence. It's got to mean, it's got to mean something to the intelligence. But I mean, Wallace Stevens, case in point, I mean, his most famous line, and I think I use it in, in the book, the only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. I think you could say it doesn't make sense. I mean, once you say it, Wallace Stevens fans howl with rage, but <laughs> with astounding meanings that they attribute it to it. But what it means is that Stevens, and I think he does this, delights in putting together ideas, words that have not been put together before, making new trips, if you like, for the imagination. And no one had put <laughs> ice cream and emperors before like that. He does that a lot in, in his poems, I think. What he talks, I mean, he worships the imagination, of course, as you know. And so exercising the imagination is what poetry is for. He says somewhere, doesn't he, um, 20 men going into a village, are 20 different men going into different villages, that, that sort of thing. I mean, the, 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 the imagination creates the outside world, he believes. No, absolutely. I, I was going to say, incidentally, when you mentioned the novel, I loved that you just, just drop into an aside that The Ring and the Book, you think, is one of the great... You know, the Browning's verse novel, The Ring and the Book, is one of, one of I think you call it, one of the greatest achievements of verbal art in English. I do think it's marvellous, you know, and it's not... I talk to undergraduates who are reading English. No one has really heard of it. And I, I think it's magnificent. It's a study in the impossibility of truth, isn't it? You know, as you know, each book is told from a different viewpoint. And you never know in the end. You know which Browning likes, but you don't know how to judge them. And I think that... The way he invents the voices for each of those uh, the viewpoints is simply wonderful. Here's amazing. And you actually, again, I mean, you, you, when you're writing about Browning, you say that the, you attribute the creation of the dramatic monologue, actually not to Browning, as often seems to be, you know, said at A-level, but to Dunn. Yeah, Browning admired Dunn very greatly. It was his favourite poet. And I do think it was from Dunn. But he learned about the dramatic monologue. It's I, and I try and point out when I'm writing about Dunn in the book that he will adopt 
alarmingly, alarmingly different viewpoints about women, for example, sex and so on. You know, and I, I, I suggest in the book, and I don't know if it's true, but it might be, I think, that Dunn was born in the great age of English theatre. I mean, that's to say Shakespeare's plays were being put on while, while he was... He was a very keen theatre goer. It's almost the, almost the only thing. Great, a great visitor of ladies, a great attender at plays. All I note about him really, and I think, yes, the idea of making up monologues, dramatic monologues for people in quite different situations from yours is something that he was gripped by. Yeah, is there an area in in this that you know as you went through the periods? That you felt, oh, this is this is rich. There's more. There's more here. I mean, I just noticed that it was sort of throwaway line. But when you're talking about, you know, the sort of, you know, restoration and the Augustan period, you're you're finding lots of things that you find interesting. And yeah, you know, in the Elizabethan period, you sort of say, well, there's, you know, there's Sydney and obviously there's Shakespeare, but you know, an awful lot of these sonnet sequences, you know, just sound exactly the same. Yes, that's right. And I did, I did do suggest in the book that uh, maybe what happened, why, why things changed was that Protestantism changed the way people thought of themselves. I think it did self-examination and the ability to choose which religious line you follow. And I say about the 17th century religious poets, I think it's true, that's to say Herbert and Traherne and Vaughan, they could have been worshipping different gods. I mean, com- <laughs> yes, you say exactly that. Yeah, completely unlike each other. Yeah. Which are the big breaks? I mean, you mentioned Protestantism, and I know, of course, you know, conventionally, at least, sort of modernism is a kind of gigantic break in the in the history. Which are the other ones you find? I mean, do you see three or four big ructions in the history of poetry? Yes, I think, well, the first one I mentioned, how the century before Dunn, was epoch making. You've got the discovery of America. You've got Copernicus, um, and and so you know both the universe and the world had changed shape. And it takes time to filter into poetry. But Dunn is on to it straight away. Oh my America, my newfound land, and so on. And and the new philosophy calls all in doubt. He loves it, of course. But other other others were terrified by it. And then I make an argument for how. At the start of the 18th century, things start well, partly because political parties firmed up and the power shifted from the court to parliament. So you get reading of magazines and coffee houses and all, all that, that sort of, you know, Grub Street comes in, into existence. And that uh, allows a poet like Pope, obviously, great poet of that era to flourish, writing about politics and beyond politics, writing about the personalities behind them. So that is a big change. Another change which I've written about sort of separately, really, is the the 19th century, partly the huge increase in the European population, but also the spread of elementary education, all the civilized countries of the West had introduced in the last decades, in 1870s in England, elementary education for everyone. 
that meant that a whole new reading public came into existence, a mass literate public for the first time ever in human history. And some people, as I say in the book, despised it, and some people decided to write for it. And people who wrote for it, obviously, H.G. Wells is a great example. And I <laughs> say in the book that those who despised it were included Baudelaire. He said the mob had invaded invaded the palace of his heart and so on. I think that is a great division. And it is what launched the idea that poetry should be difficult, that it should appeal only to the educated minority, an idea which I think was very damaging. Well, you've written as much in one of your most famous books, The Intellectuals and the Masses. And so, I mean, that starts with Baudelaire, does it, as far as you're... Yes, I would say it does, and I should have made that clearer in the intellectual masses, really, because I hadn't actually didn't know the symbolist poets all that well at that time. But yeah, I I would trace it to, mind you, the symbolist poets are are not necessarily very like Baudelaire. For heaven's sake, Baudelaire is perfectly clear what he's saying, and it was intended to cause a rumpus and did. It's much harder with Rambo to say what he's saying. Yeah, and of course, Eliot loved Mallarmé, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Eliot particularly loved La Fougue. Yes, oh, yes. I'm not denying that Eliot benefited greatly from reading the symbolist poets. I just think that, well, for me, Eliot's gift of phrase is so magnificent that although it's very hard to say, and it may be not worth trying to find out exactly what Eliot is saying in all the poems, the gift of phrase makes him to me, irresistible. And, and I think not only to me, but I think that's a large part of his following is are, are those who are captivated by his just the phrases he uses, like, you know, I've measured out my life with coffee spoons and I'll show you fear in a handful of dust, not with a bang, but a whimper, you know, those phrases. Some of these chapters, and the one you, you mentioned, the symbolists, You've stirred in to that chapter. You know, you've got the, the people who maybe would obviously seem to belong together, like Baudelaire, Mallarmé, Verlaine, Rambo, Valérie. But then you've also put Oscar Wilde in, we can see. But Dylan Thomas finds his way in there in a kind of time-travelling way. Yes. What is it that, that made you think, I mean, is this the sort of poetry on the edge of sense or was there something something deeper well, than that? Dylan Thomas acknowledged his debt to the symbolist, didn't he? He said he was the, the Malamé of Crumdonkin Drive. <laughs> you know, I think he did learn to use in the really unintelligible Dylan Thomas, like the Autowise by Owl Light sonnets. He's very like this. <laughs> I, I do say it. He's as near as English poetry can get to simplest poetry. But he learned, of course, to write intelligibly. I mean, the poems he's great for remembered for, like, do not go gentle into that good night, you know, about his father. Yeah. Anyone can understand in my craft or sullen art, you know, I mean, he's marvellous once he starts to make, to make some kind of sense. <laughs> Again, I'm just intrigued by what causes you to, you know, put people in together and how you, how you, you know, allocate space in some ways. For example, poor old Swift, I think, just gets a paragraph. I don't know. Do you think of him just as a prose writer, mostly? Yes, I do. I, it's true I choose just a couple of Swift's poems because they seem, well, so much of his poetry is permeated by his hatred, really, of physicality, of the female body particularly, 
and I, I'm, not, I'm not attracted by that and think it's a failing in him as a human being. But the two that I choose are just very vivid snatches of morning scenes in London. It is, I, you've got a lot to push into the 18th century. What I did was to divide it up into, as you know, the Augustan poets. And, and I get Swift in, in there and Johnson with vanity of human wishes and so on. But also I have a chapter called The Other 18th Century, where I discovered a lot of women poets who, yeah. are pretty, I mean, women romantic poets before the male romantics and fiercely feminist women poets arguing for the superiority of the female to the male, who hardly ever get into any literary history. So I, it's true that I group those together with other abnormalities or other misfits like Christopher Smart. Yes. Um, you know, Got a wonderful um, one-off in a way. But, but, but people who do get overlooked in standard, often get overlooked in standard histories of English literature. Yeah. And you also put, you have a chapter which has it's on on hymns and ballads, you know, on sort of expanding the canon. Was that to try and give some context? Well, first I thought, well, I won't put hymns and ballads in because they really are songs and it's not a history of song. But on the other hand, I thought they're so wonderful often. And so I did. And I'm, I argued, and I think it's right, that people who listened to ballad singers in the early I don't know, 18th century, 17th century, or, or who sang hymns in church, would very likely have no other day-to-day contact you know, with poetry. So I, I thought they had a real place. And anyway, they're so wonderful. One of the ballads I'm most keen on, it come, comes from Orkney, apparently. And it's about a boy who's turned into a, a, a laily worm, that is to say, a loathsome snake and he says and she turned his, his wicked stepmother she turned me to a laily worm that lies at the foot of the tree and my sister Maisery to a mackerel of the sea and every Saturday <laughs> at noon the mackerel comes to me she takes my laily head and lays it in her knee and kems it with a silver kem and washes it in the sea a marvellous piece of surreal pathos um, no one knows, of course, who wrote it. That's the trouble with ballads. No one knows any of the authors. And for hymns, well, I, the one I use in, in, the, in the book is to illustrate is Amazing Grace, which, of course, by a man who was a slave trader and was converted in a storm at sea and, and became a clergyman. But I, the one I'm most keen on uh, of the hymns, really, is um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. One of my mother's favourite hymns, and the bit, bit, bit at the end about his something crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree, and I am dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Wonderful. Now you put Hughes and Plath in a chapter together. What was it that made you pick them out and put them together apart? I mean, was it just the accident of their marriage, or do you think that poetically? there is a sort of connection between them in literary terms. Because I know Hughes very often gets lumped in in sort of A-level texts with the likes of Heaney. Yes, I do think that they are 
irrevocably linked, uh, tragically linked, of course. That's to say, well, to me, unarguable that Plath's greatest poetry, the really great, great, great poems like Daddy, Lady Lazarus, were written when she had been deserted by Hughes. She uh, talks to her mother about it in letters that uh, she gets up very early in the morning when the children are asleep and writes it till four o'clock. Like writing in God's intestine, she says. Well, that link is, is very important. And the thing I do bring out, and I think it's right to bring out, is how Hughes owed his success to her promotion of him. I mean, how she wrote, put him in for prizes and and generally advertised his work as, as hard as she could go. And she was a very good publicist. Do you think she was the greater poet? I've heard Bernard Donoghue say words to that effect. I much admired Bernard, and I would hesitate to disagree with him about anything, actually. I admire him so much. But I, I think I would say that Hughes is the greater poet. Yeah. And this this is a book, as you, you know, you said it's a book for, you know, aimed in some ways at teenagers. It's a sort of primer, an introduction to poetry. Yeah. Do you think... Do you have such strong views on how you think poetry should be taught in schools? I mean, do you feel that children should be encouraged to kind of memorise poetry? Do you think, you know, teenage students should be, as it were, taken through the canon to try and show how how these poets are in dialogue with their ancestors and so forth? Yeah, it's a tricky question. And I'm not good at teaching children, I think. I'm not particularly marvellous at teaching undergraduates. But children, yeah, I think I would start early on, really, in, in primary school, they might be encouraged perhaps to think of poetry as being somewhere else than prose. That's to say, it sort of struck me, <laughs> instead of starting with the Epic of Gilgamesh, I might have started with a nursery rhyme. Thinking of nursery rhyme like, Goosey, goosey, gander, where shall you wander? Upstairs and downstairs and in my lady's chamber. There I met an old man who wouldn't say his prayers, so I took him by the left leg and threw him down the stairs. Now, you think about that, it's got the great themes of poetry. It's got sex, my latest chamber. It's got religion, wouldn't say his prayers. It's got a completely different kind of reality, you know. And obviously, a goose doesn't take some by the <laughs> left leg and throw him down the stairs. It's got violence. And it's another world. It's another, another, another kind of reality which doesn't correlate to ours, our prose reality. And um, the more you bring that out to kids at the primary school level, I think, the more they perhaps would take to poetry. Well, I hope they do and that they graduate to reading your book. Professor Carey, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much, Sam. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.